Okay, Boomer. Okay, Boomer. Okay, Boomer. Okay, Boomer. Okay, Boomer. Okay, kid, I'm Robert Rickman. Now, have you heard of someone who has moved to another city or state because of politics? Economics professor John Jackson doesn't expect this tribalism to end soon. Uh, it's not going to be easily reconciled. We are deeply divided over ideology, over religion, over race, over ethnic and gender ID and all kinds of things. And that's in the 2020s. But we're going to go back 100 years to the 1920s to this announcement. Gentlemen, you must excuse. Uh, the president is dead. Edward R. Murrow reports about a critical time in the 1920s that may rhyme with the 2020s. Then there are those old TV network image promos. You know, uh, one made by a big, big network and somebody rewrote it. Just move around and run this network in the ground. The big so thank you, friends. Yeah, thanks a whole lot. And now back to the 21st century. What was it like for a boomer substitute teacher after the kids came back to school in the wake of the pandemic? All the teachers have been talking about how bad the kids are that were remote learners during that time. Randy Mitchell is a substitute teacher in a rural area who talks about how people communicate post-pandemic and in the world of the smartphones and tablets. During a recent trip, Randy posted this on his Facebook page while at Midway Airport in Chicago. He wrote, I have never seen so many people spend so much time on their phones. The girl that sat next to me at Midway spent five minutes untangling charger cords. I'm surprised that I don't hear about concussions from walking into stuff while looking down at their phones. Now, I talked with Randy this week about how he handles his cell phone. I will admit I'm addicted to my cell phone when I have when I'm bored or have nothing to do, I can't just sit and not do nothing usually. There, you know, if I'm trying to walk or move or whatever in an airport where there are other people around, to me it is absolutely asinine to be sitting there constantly worried about what's going on on your phone. You got all these other people and obstacles and half don't know where you're going. It's not like you're checking your phone to see if you've got a message or you're checking your phone to see if somebody's called you. You're just surfing the web. Yeah, yeah. surfing the web. And, and I've noticed I'm living in a place where there's a lot of graduate students and they are not very, in some cases, sociable. They're spending a lot of times on their phone and it's gotten to the point of where they're very introverted. They're afraid to talk to people, it seems like to me. Have you noticed that? I have grandkids and whatnot and i noticed that they will hang up from talking to somebody so they can text them oh wow or instagram or snapchat or all these other things there's very little face-to-face -face communication unless they have no choice like they're in class see i substitute here in bit and i see you know i see my grandkids at school and i see all the, their classmates and whatnot and these kids' lives are basically ruled by being online. It's just, it's just weird. Do you it's think weird. there's anything um, that will be done about it? Do you think it's going to change, or do you think it's going to get worse based on your observations? I'd say it's going to get worse before it gets better. Mm -hmm. uh, people are, how do they say it? They get in their phone, and they get in a safe bubble. 
and are afraid to, it's safer, you know, letting you hang up or hit the FU button on the side of the phone or whatever, uh, easier than they can uh, get out of a actual conversation. Mm-hmm. And That's what I noticed. I, I remember when I was going to school uh, here in Carbondale, we used to talk to each other. There's a lot of talking now. There's not so much of it. And uh, I think, as I mentioned before, some of these people are afraid to talk. They've just been so, you know, especially the younger kids nowadays, they've been so inured to online and on-screen presences. Well, I think, too, and a lot of it, you know, is what we're seeing now is not just cell phones taking over. It's a lot of, you said you had COVID, it's a lot of pandemic stuff. People got too used to Zoom, Microsoft Teams, Google Meets. In 2020, right after when they broke for spring break, nobody came back. Mm -hmm. The rest of the year was Zoom for everybody. Yeah, and then 20, 20, 2021 was hybrid. You, the kids could be on Zoom or they, you know, through online classroom, or they could come to school, and we all had to wear masks nearly all year. The um, the kids that were online all year when they finally had to come back were the worst disciplinary problems we've had. Did you say disciplinary problems? Disciplinary. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, because they got no structure, no rules, Mm -hmm. no time, no schedules, no nothing, no supervision, no nothing. At least in, and all the teachers have been talking about it. I substitute teach. All the teachers have been talking about how bad the kids are that were remote learners during that time. Mm. It's just, you know, they've trade Chromebook and telephone and everything else for, you know, actual interaction with people and no structure. Cell phones and the computers themselves ain't bad, Mm -hmm. but it's when they have the no structure, no supervision, no no limits. That's why when you tend to have the kids go off the rails. And I think it's a lot of what is going on in society is online, there's no structure, there's no limits, there's no controls, there's no nothing. And I'm a libertarian kind of guy. I don't want people imposing it, but some, you know, at some point they have to we have to have some sort of, you know, manners, respect, responsibility. And I don't know how we're going to get that back. And yeah, yeah, that, that is obvious to me too, where we, we are in a, an arena where there are no rules. Yeah. And, you know, when you're online, you know, you don't have, if you say something, really stupid to somebody you can get your nose punched yeah if we do it like here or if we're commenting on facebook we can say anything we want to and right. there are no consequences 
Yep. And there are other ones that are even worse. I mean, you see things online that you wouldn't see in a in a magazine, you know, sold under the the pile in the news. You know, you want you want a picture of these girls. I mean, it, there's just so much now online where there are no rules whatsoever. I mean, we're seeing that, you know, and it's one of the broader society. You know, it's all this, um, you know, uh, what are we putting on TV, like uh, transgender stuff and what, everything. You know, I don't care how anybody lives their life, you know, everything like that. But when you put it out there where it's freely available, kids and, you know, young adults can see all this stuff. And they have no context to... Uh, for the rules, or you know, of, you know, polite society, so to speak, and it, uh, they tend to deal with it either inappropriately or uh, reactively instead of responsibly and courteously. Okay. Well, I think you've given us a good idea of your perception of what's going on. I think a lot of boomers would agree with them. Yeah, I, like I said, I don't, I don't begrudge anybody the way, you know, their choices, the way they want to live and whatnot. I don't care who you marry or who you love. It's just kids that are, you know, below fifth and sixth grade, they don't really understand all the nuances and all the background and stuff that goes with that and if you put that just put that out there in an unfiltered way especially where they can get a hold of it it's it's not good for them randy mitchell is retired from his job as a state prison facility and is the commanding officer of the air force auxiliary civil air patrol for southern illinois and uh, we hope to have um, randy back again some of his comments and oh yes uh, randy is a boomer. The news is next. Okay, let's take a look at scams. I'm Robert Rickman with Boomer News. The Miami Herald reports that two brothers have admitted to being part of a $67 million scam that targeted Medicare recipients. The two, along with five other Florida residents, attempted to enrich themselves with federal funds. Federal officials say Daniel M. Carver, 36 of Boca Raton, owned and managed call centers that he used to solicit Medicare beneficiaries for medically unnecessary genetic tests and medical equipment. Agents also say Louis Gino Carver, 32 of Delray Beach, worked for call centers acting as a straw owner of a laboratory that submitted false genetic testing claims. The tests use DNA sequencing to detect mutations in genes that could indicate a higher risk of developing certain types of cancer and cardiovascular diseases. Now, between January 2020 and July 2021, agents say the group, and here's the laundry list, paid kickbacks and bribes to telemedicine companies in exchange for completed doctor's orders, sold doctor's orders to laboratories and medical equipment companies in exchange for kickbacks, forged doctors and patient signatures, tricked medical providers into ordering medically unnecessary genetic testing. Investigators say the scheme resulted in the submission of over $67 million in claims to Medicare. Both men are scheduled to be sentenced December 5th. So, folks, on the outside here, 
be careful of any type of scam because some of these scammers are going for you. And we continue with Medicare. Medscape Medical News reports that physician groups have renewed their calls for an overhaul of Medicare's clinical payment after Medicare recently announced an unexpected drop in the base rate used in the physician fee schedule for next year. Overall payment rates under the physician fee schedule are to be reduced by 1.25% in 2024 compared with this year. The Centers of Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, said. CMS expects a drop in base rate known as the conversion factor by $1.14 to $32.75 or 3.34%. The AMA says this cut comes at a time when CMS' own estimates show that physicians face a sharp increase in inflation. The Medicare Economic Index may rise by 4.5% in 2024 after an expected gain of 3.8% this year. Now, according to Jesse M. Ehrenfield, M.D., MAS president, this is almost biblical in its impact. He said lean years that include pandemic and rampaging inflation have caused this, and he says physicians need relief from this unsustainable journey. And AMA and other physician groups have asked Congress to return to permanently including a broader inflation adjuster in the Medicare physician fee schedule. This also might mean in the future that you'll be paying more to the doctor. And the U.S. does not have mortality rates similar to peer nations. A new study led by Boston University School of Public Health researcher finds that in 2021, 1.1 million deaths would have been averted in the United States if the U.S. had mortality rates similar to other wealthy nations. Now, comparing age-specific death rates, the authors find that current death rates in the U.S. are much higher than other wealthy nations, and the number of excess U.S. deaths has never been larger, and that's what they're calling excess U.S. deaths, U.S. mortality that's above the average for industrial countries. Nearly 50% of all missing Americans died between 65 and 2020 and 2021. Missing Americans mean excess deaths. Dr. Jacob Bohr, a contributor to the study, says the level of excess mortality among working-age adults is particularly stark. Bohr says, think of people you know who have passed away before reaching age 65. Statistically, half of them would still be alive if the U.S. has the mortality rates of our peers. The U.S. is experiencing crisis of early death that is unique among wealthy nations. That according to the doctor. Now, the COVID-19 pandemic contributed to a sharp spike in mortality in the U.S., more so than in any other countries, but the new findings show that the number of excess U.S. deaths has been accelerating over the last four decades. Dr. Bohr and colleagues analyzed trends in the U.S. deaths from 1933 to 2021, including the impact of COVID-19, and then compared these trends with age-specific mortality rates in Canada, Japan, Australia, and 18 European countries. Other news. Who's more likely to be suffering from Alzheimer's disease? The answer, seniors living in the east and southeast regions of the United States are most likely to have Alzheimer's disease. This from new data shared at the Alzheimer's Association International Conference and published in the organization's journal. The report offers the first estimates of Alzheimer's disease prevalence in the U.S. at county level. And the estimates suggest that Alzheimer's rates are highest in Miami-Dade County, Baltimore, and the Bronx, where about one in six seniors have the disease. 
Maryland has the highest prevalence at the state level, followed by New York and Mississippi. Experts say the findings may be useful to help public health leaders and organizations better support the millions living with this disease and plan for the aging population. Now let's talk about heat. I like to jog a little bit. I run around, and in this area of the country, the temperature is many times in the 90s. I get awfully hot. Other boomers get hot, and they get a little bit too hot, and they uh, suffer from heat exhaustion. Now, this results from prolonged exposure to high temperatures, leading to symptoms that can make you sick. Uh, Some of the signs of heat exhaustion are clammy skin, dizziness, headache, muscle cramps, extreme thirst, excessive sweating, dehydration, fainting, nausea, vomiting, weakness, and decreased urine output. So here's some of the advice for us walking around in the hot weather, exercising, mowing the lawn. Stay hydrated. Adequate hydration is paramount in preventing heat exhaustion. Uh, we should drink plenty of fluids, and uh, also we can uh, drink some of those sports drinks because they have electrolytes. And dress appropriately. That means uh, no evening gowns, uh, no evening jackets. Uh, choose lightweight Loose-fitting clothing made of breathable fabrics such as cotton or linen, light-colored clothing as well. And also, this is obvious, seek shade and air conditioning. Uh, Time outdoor activities wisely. That means uh, let's not hit the track at 3 in the afternoon in the hot sun. Use cooling strategies like the air conditioner, showers, baths, etc. I think above all, it's necessary to be aware that this can be a very big hazard and what might make a a younger person uncomfortable might kill you. Well, not too many years ago when someone moved to another state, it was because of job or family. But not anymore. It's because of politics. Economics professor John Jackson says choosing where to live based on politics is another sign of the nation's polarization. I recently spoke with Professor Jackson. I've been doing some reading about people who are moving to other towns because other people in these towns are of the same political party. How prevalent is that now? Uh, Well, it is prevalent, and it includes states. Uh, The movement within states is really remarkable, or across state lines, for the same reasons. But this, in some ways, has been with us for quite a while. We've had population relocation pretty steadily now for I would say three or four decades, but the population relocation was originally driven by economic factors mostly. It was, I'm going to go where I can have a better career or where I can get a good paying job or a better paying job or uh, I can pay lower taxes for some people. Uh, And that was thought to be the major motivation for many, many years. And we did, you know, we did have serious internal population changes uh, for three or four decades. The census shows that. What's happened recently, though, I think is notable because we have sort of culture wars driven relocation now. And that didn't used to be a major part of the equation. We've got all these cultural war things going on, and the most notable recently, of course, is Supreme Court ruling on abortion. Mm-hmm. And that's probably been the most prominent driver recently. People on both sides of that equation, but there's a lot of other overlays uh, there that uh, 
fit that culture wars motif. So it's something that has gotten new moment, momentum, I would say. I remember back in the uh, 70s uh, when I um, moved to Mason City, Iowa mm-hmm. uh, for, to work at a radio station in, uh, in the radio and TV department at SIU. One of the advisors said, you're going to a very conservative place. But it just happened to be that way, did it not? People didn't move to Mason City, Iowa back in the 1970s because it was conservative. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's what's changed now. And it's a different trend that uh, we're seeing again. And I saw an article recently, maybe the same article that you saw about it. There's a whole book on this called The Big Sort, S-O-R-T. And it's all about that trend. Now, is this trend led by the baby boomers? Um, I'm not sure I would say it's by the baby boomers. I would say it's uh, to the extent that uh, retirees have been leading this uh, toward Florida and toward Sun Belt. uh, That's been true for a long time. But a lot of the local and regional stuff that we've seen more recently is driven more, I think, by the culture wars and particularly the abortion issue. Supreme Court created this when they overturned uh, the whole Roe versus Wade had been good national law for almost 50 years and all of a sudden it wasn't national law anymore and the whole thing was thrown back to the states and the Supreme Court sort of said, okay, you've fight it out and that's what's happening people are fighting it out what do you think is the solution to this they call it tribalism so you've got one tribe in one state and you got another tribe in another state how do you think this is going to reconcile uh, it's not going to be easily reconciled we are deeply divided over ideology over religion over race over ethnic and uh, gender ID and all kinds of things And it used to not be overlaid in the party system, but now it's clearly overlaid with differences between Democrats and Republicans, conservatives and liberals. And that is very, very deeply ingrained now. And the leadership in many instances of both parties emphasize those differences. We have to have political leaders who emphasize what unifies us, not what divides us. And right now, they'll take the short-term hit of getting the best turnout of their base in the next election, and that's going to be hard to break. I remember the days of uh, Teddy Kennedy and John McCain. Yeah. They both disagreed with each other. They were on opposite sides of the political spectrum, yet they were friends, and they got legislation passed. Yeah, well, that's exactly a good example. And John McCain practically got run out of the Republican Party before his death. And Donald Trump, of course, always hated him, and they didn't get along. And it was carried to the grave in the sense that Donald Trump wasn't invited to McCain's funeral service. And so that shows you how deeply ingrained some of the base divisions in the Republican Party are. But we've got to get people that are willing to compromise. And I think a good example of that, we got two big infrastructure bills recently. We got in Illinois in 2019 a huge infrastructure bill, about $46, $48 billion 
and it was driven by the Democrats, but a lot of Republicans got on board. Uh, and then Biden got a huge federal infrastructure bill in 21, and that too had a lot of Republican support. And that's the kind of example that sometimes shows you can't overcome those tribal divisions. My understanding uh, with uh, Obamacare is that the Republicans did not overturn it because there were too many voters on the Republican side who were benefiting from it. Is that your observation? Well, I think that was a part of it, and I think the hospitals and the doctors, they needed Obamacare to, to get the system in better shape because mm -hmm. what they were doing was they have to treat everybody who comes to the emergency room, but they weren't getting reimbursed for that, so mm -hmm. they loaded it on the people who had insurance and who were paying the bills, and that had gotten to be untenable, and Obamacare helped sort that out to some extent. So they put a big show on more than 40 votes against Obamacare, but they could never repeal it. Do you think it's going to, well, that's, this is an obvious question, but it's going to be, be up to a future generation, not X or baby boomers, to get this strained out? Well, I would hope the younger generation can still learn something, and they are capable of good and rational thinking at times. They might be the best generation. Uh, I'd hate to think we're going to wait generations longer, but uh, we do need to start making progress. you have any final thoughts, Professor? I would say we've been divided before. Uh, I came through the Vietnam War divisions, mm -hmm. the Civil Rights divisions. I've seen all that. We've overcome some tremendous divisions before, but the two differences are Again, the partisan divisions didn't overlay those internal divisions, cultural and economic and so forth, the way they do now. And more importantly, the party leadership didn't pander to them and try to exacerbate them for short-term gain the way they do now. We've got to have leadership that looks for the long-term rather than the short-term perspective. Which reminds me, we're in a place named after a congressman, senator, and presidential candidate, and when I was working on WSIU in Carbondale and WRHA in Anna, I interviewed, at the time, what congressman do you think? <laughs> Paul Simon, I would think. Paul Simon, and we're in the Paul Simon Institute. Right. Yeah, I've never been in this building before. Well, you should have come visited already. <laughs> now you know where it is. John Jackson. Paul Simon Public Policy Institute visiting professor has more than four decades of political expertise in research in presidential politics, campaigns, and elections. The Paul Simon Public Policy Institute is located on the campus of Southern Illinois University, Carbondale, a 50 miles north of where the Ohio and Mississippi rivers come together. Okay, Boomer. Okay, well, she's enthusiastic. Oh, it's time to get up. Oh, it always hurts. And take a walk to the coffee pot. Oh, my gosh. That's refreshing getting up for a while and walking around. And Oh, we have, um, we have a door here, and as usual, I'm very curious, and so we'll open it up. And Oh, we're at the OK Boomer Stable, and some of our horses are trotting around. Okay, folks, what we're going to do is we're going to have some coffee, and then we're going to hear about how astronauts drink coffee next.
I love a cup of coffee, a good cup of coffee. In fact, I live on coffee. Years ago, when I was in school, working on the uh, college radio station, I would have this big coffee pot going with a little spigot, you know, in those days, and I'd drink coffee, oh, until about midnight, which meant that if I wasn't going to classes, I was drinking coffee, and uh, I was swimming in coffee. I can't do that anymore. Oh, looks like the coffee's about ready. Mm. Oh, that's delicious. But let's talk about what the astronauts have to do to have coffee, and it's not drinking it out of a mug. High above our planet, in the realm of satellites and space stations, the familiar rules of Earth do not apply. Midday skies as black as night, there is no up nor down, dropped objects do not fall, and hot air does not rise. But of all the strange things that happen up there, it is possible that the strangest happens to coffee. A cup of joe with Roberts. Physics professor Mark Weislogel of Portland State University says, for starters, it would be a chore just getting the coffee into the cup. Absent the pull of gravity, pouring liquids can be very tricky. But for the sake of argument, let's suppose you are on the space station and you have a cup of coffee in your hand. I'm holding it right now. The most natural thing would be to tip the cup towards your lips. What one would do, the coffee would be very hard to control, he continues. In fact, it probably wouldn't come out the cup. You'd have to shake the cup towards your face and hope that some of the liquid breaks loose and floats towards your mouth. On the bright side, you will probably be wide awake by the time the cup is empty. Now, to develop a better understanding of fluids and microgravity, Weisslogel and colleagues are conducting the capillary flow experiment on board the International Space Station. Weisslogel and colleagues have already been granted three patents for the devices, one of which, that's right, is for a low-gravity coffee cup. And they designed it specifically for me because one of these days I'd like to go into space and everyone knows how much I need to have my coffee. Basically, one side of the cup has a sharp interior corner. In the microgravity environment of the space station, capillary forces send fluid flowing along the channel right into the lips of the drinker. As you sip, mm, more fluid keeps coming and you can enjoy your coffee in a weightless environment. Clear down to the last drop. Okay, Boomer. Okay, folks, this is what we're going to do now. As Mark Twain allegedly said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Listen to Edward R. Murrow's report of events from 100 years ago and hear what rhymes. By 1920, Americans had lost one freedom and gained another. By virtue of the 18th and 19th Amendments, it was just as illegal to take a drink as it was to prevent a woman from voting. It was the year after the infamous Black Sox scandal, and it was the big year for Babe Ruth, Man of War, and the Manassas Mauler, of the Wall Street bombing and Main Street. Women's skirts were six inches above the ground and going up. So was the cost of living and Republican hopes. And 1920 was the year of the shrewdest prediction in the history of U.S. politics. Mr. Doherty? You don't really think Harding has a chance, do you? Well, boys, I'll tell you what I think. The convention will be deadlocked. After the other candidates have failed, we'll get together in some hotel room, oh, about 2.11 in the morning. 
and some 15 men, bleary-eyed with lack of sleep, will sit down around a big table. When that time comes, Senator Harding will be selected. That was the voice of Harry Doherty, who promoted the Harding boom almost from obscurity, and whose uncanny prediction was only 11 minutes off. An exuberant GOP had gone to Chicago to nominate the next president. But by the end of five hectic ballots, no one candidate commanded a majority. The tabulation of the vote for the nomination as President of the United States, Governor Loudon, 289 votes, General Leonard Wood, 314, Senator Hiram Johnson, 119. Then the convention adjourned, the party elders convening in that smoke-filled room. This was the moment for Doherty to trot out his dark horse. So it was that some 30 seconds after 2 a.m., Warren Harding was summoned, and 10 hours later, an excited convention gave him the nomination. Harding, who never considered himself presidential timber, accepted his party's call with the modesty and apprehension of a bewildered gambler, slightly out of his class, who had won the big hand. Well, gentlemen, as we say, I guess we just drew to a pair of deuces and and filled. Extremely handsome and gregarious, Harding was a symbol of the times. The nation was war-weary and disillusioned. People wanted to loosen their belts and bask in the sunshine of prosperity. This was the time to live high, wide, and handsome, and Harding was the man to lead them. America's present need is not heroics, but healing. Not nostrums, but normalcy. Not revolution, but restoration. Not experiment, but equipoise. Not submergence in internationality, but sustainment in triumphant nationality. In just one moment now, KDKA, in cooperation with the Pittsburgh Post and Sun, will present the latest presidential election return. November 2nd, 1920. The first big news story into American homes by way of the earphones, the cat's whisker, and the crystal set. I can hear it now. It is now apparent that the Republican ticket of Harding and Coolidge is running well ahead of Cox and Roosevelt. At the present time, Harding has collected more than 16 million votes against some 9 million for the Democrats. We'll give you the state vote in just a moment. But first, we'd like to ask you to let us know if this broadcast is reaching you. Please drop us a card, address station KDKA, Westinghouse, East Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The first two years of the Harding administration were filled with harmony, happiness, and high wages, which a buyer's strike finally forced down. The self-starter was still part of the brave new world, and the unpredictable crank was still reaping its harvest of broken arms. The Maxwell, the Jordan, the Moon, the Pierce Arrow, and the open touring car were vanishing as quickly as the petticoat. It was definitely the age of the fliver and the flapper. Zigfield, Flo, you not only glorified the American girl, but you put enough clothes on her to make people want to see her. It was just about this time that a fellow twirling a rope who had stepped off an Oklahoma ranch and into the Ziegfeld Follies stepped onto the pages of the New York Times, which said, Not unworthily is Will Rogers carrying on the tradition of Aristophanes. Had there been no Zigfield and no Follies, I would today have been... 12 miles north of Clarem, Oklahoma, plowing for corn, 
slopping the hogs, running moans still, and knocking the Republican Party, as that is considered one of the chores in my country. I used to whine a song called Casey Jones with one hand, and he used to spin the rope with the other, and then whine into the old empty rain barrel with the other, and then in between the verses, I used to tell jokes about the Senate of the United States. If I needed any new jokes that night, I used to just get the late afternoon papers and read what uh, Congress had done that day, and the audience would die laughing. I wasn't old enough then to know what they were laughing at, but now that I'm a taxpayer, I know exactly what they were laughing at then. The White House is a kind of alchemist. There, little men have grown great, and great men have become giants. Warren Harding entered armed with the love and devotion of an adoring public. But the White House took this mediocre man, found his weaknesses, overwhelmed him, and broke him. His ordeal, which lasted 27 months, transformed a full-throated optimist into a faltering cynic. Listen to the process as it took place. Harding, just before his inauguration. I like to go out to the country and bloviate. What is the greatest thing in life? Happiness. And there is more happiness in the American village than any place on earth. The president, six months later. You know... Before I was elected, I thought the chief pleasure of being president would be to give honors and office to my old friends. But you know, you can't do that when you are president. You have to get the best man. Harding, after one year. The White House is a prison. I can't get away from men who dog my footsteps. I'm in jail. Harding, after 18 months. I am a man of limited talents from a small town. I, I don't seem to grasp the fact that I'm president. After 26 months. In this job, I'm not worried about my enemies. It's my friends who are giving me trouble. On July 24th, 1923, the late afternoon paper showed that Rogers Hornsby was leading the National League with 399 and that Anaconda Copper had closed at 42 and a quarter. The president was resting comfortably at the Palace Hotel in San Francisco after an attack of indigestion. And Calvin Coolidge, in the most anonymous job in the world, was fishing in Vermont. At 7.30, Harding's secretary, George Christian, was standing before a large audience in Los Angeles, reading the speech the president had been scheduled to make that night. <clears throat> the president continues. I am a confirmed optimist as to the growth of the spirit of brotherhood. We do rise to heights at times when we look for the good rather than the evil in others. Ladies and gentlemen, you must excuse President Harding. The president is dead. That music from CBS Reports with Edward R. Murrow back in the 50s. You're hearing Appalachian Spring by Aaron Copeland. That's the music I'm playing. History doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. 
Have you heard anything in this report about the 1920s that rhymes with the 2000 era, the 2020s? Okay, from kind of a uh, somber report out of the 1920s, let's go back to exercise. Now, I know how difficult it is for you to uh, exercise. It's difficult for me. In fact, this week I haven't done much of it at all. It's hard to incentivize people who who don't exercise at all. Now, I've been doing it more or less all my life, but I've met some people who have had some real problems trying to get going with exercise, so I visited the local gym. Yep, I went to the local gym, and I visited a trainer by the name of Alexis, and we had a little talk while I was on the exercise bike. What's all the way on this thing? Now... I uh, used to run a lot when I was younger, swim and all that. Now, lifting weights and doing this, I don't like. It's, it's work. How do you address that with someone who is a baby boomer who just doesn't like exercise? Um, you just have to meet them where they're at. So you got to see what they're comfortable with. And even if it's something you know that's not going to fully benefit them right away, you got to meet them where they're at and form that relationship with them, allow them to trust you, trust the process, and then slowly build your way up. Um, and it's really nice when they can see their progress there. Tell me if you can, the most decrepit baby boomer who's ever walked into this gym and what you had to do to get he or she into shape. Yeah, so I had someone um, come in wanting a program and she really, you could really tell that she needed me to help her throughout the process instead of just giving her a program, letting her go. Um, She really needed me to be there with her, if not to obviously help her with form, but just like support her through it. Um, So I kind of assessed where she was at. Um, Where was she at? What shape was she in and what did she look like? Um, So she was definitely overweight, pretty sedentary um, in her daily life. We wanted to address what she was doing and then um, just coming in and seeing what her limitations were, if she had any pain with anything. We kind of got through that. She didn't really have much pain. She just had never done anything before. Um, And so we kind of just put her on the machines, see what she could do, just see... um, if she could figure out how that movement works and feeling those muscles, for example, I'd be like, okay, this machine works your back. Let's see if you can feel it work your back. So we would kind of get through that slowly, just one machine at a time. Once she was doing that consistently, just two days a week, nothing crazy, um, 30 minutes a day. And once she was kind of progressing there, you could see her strength progressing just a little bit. I wanted to bring her out and show her some new things that would I knew benefit her more than the machines. Um, so I got her out there and showed her some other alternative exercises that mimicked the movement on the machine, but it was just a little bit different, a little more free weight or cable um, type of exercises. And you could tell that she liked doing the different exercises she felt like she was progressing um, and we also got her from doing box squats where you sit on a bench and stand back up just normal like you know sitting down and standing up and then we got her to doing regular squats so you could see that progression there and you can tell um, I know she got frustrated there for a little bit like oh like I've only lost a pound and like I, I also gained it back the other day I'm kind of just like wavering on that one pound she was very stuck on the scale and I was like 
don't be stuck on the scale. It's all, the scale does not tell you the full story. You have to trust the process. It's a slow process, but it's so worth it um, in the end, especially if you're just consistent with it. And you can tell she's been consistent. She's been coming um, twice a week, 30 minutes a day. Sometimes I'll have her just ride the bike at the end if I have another client after her. Um, and just getting that extra movement in. Sometimes I try to challenge her. She usually says she gets maybe 7,000 steps a day. I try to challenge her to get 8,000 steps a day. Just little steps to um, have her progress. It sounds to me like it was absolutely necessary for you to be there to encourage her. If she had to do it by herself, what do you think would have happened? I think she would have gotten to the point where she stopped showing up, if I'm being honest. Um, it was hard for her to, to remember which machine she was doing, and so I would kind of have to remind her, show her how to do it, um, and help her with the, the weight and stuff, which is totally fine, but I think if she was doing it on her own, it would have been difficult for her to stay consistent, and eventually I don't think she would have showed up anymore. Uh, how old was she, you estimate? I would say mid-60s. Okay, that's not too far away from what I am. Um, now, as far as this weight business is concerned, muscle weighs more than fat, correct? Correct. So could she have been converting some of the fat into muscle? Definitely. So I, I usually don't recommend to people to constantly look at the scale. I, I know it doesn't paint a full picture there um, because when you're when you're losing fat and you're gaining muscle, it kind of evens everything out, right? So sometimes you have to go a step further. And I know there's some special scales out there that tells you fat percentage um, and muscle percentage. And all of that is way more important to know rather than just, just the scale because somebody that is 180 pounds can look totally different than another person that's 180 pounds because of that muscle difference. So um, the, the scale really doesn't paint a full picture. And there are no scales that I can see here at this gym. Right. Planet Fitness does not have scales. We've had a lot of people ask about that, but it's just not a thing we do. <laughs> okay, let's compare this person you're talking about with somebody who's been exercising all his or her life who is in their mid-60s. How do they behave? What do they think? So I would say they're a lot um, wiser in the gym. So a lot of people that are that age, they've been working out their whole life. They know their limits. They know like what movements maybe they, they can't do or have to take it easy on or be cautious with. Um, and you can obviously see it in their, in their body type, like the way um, that you can see their muscles and stuff and in their movements. And a lot of time they're, they're more mobile. They're able to do more um, and sometimes people in their mid-60s can surprise you on things that they can do. So there, there's a clear difference in, in people who have been working out for a long time. Okay, this is strictly going to be your opinion based on what you've seen, but what's the prognosis for someone who keeps his self or herself in good shape into the 60s as opposed to somebody who's just starting out and who is overweight? Happiness? Uh, maybe we're talking about how long they'll live, the quality of life, etc. Yeah, so it it's definitely never too late to start if you haven't done it before, um, but sometimes you just you just have to get into it and obviously people who have been working out longer usually their quality of life is way better um, and Honestly, you, you could say they, they might live longer. Um, it, it's hard to tell, obviously, in certain situations, but it's never too late to start. And um, if you've never worked out before, 
get in a gym, maybe just start, maybe just walk a little bit, maybe just walk around your neighborhood. Um, small steps are way better than getting all this motivation, getting in there and going too hard and then losing that motivation completely and not getting back into the gym. So it's better to just take smaller steps, see yourself progress. And like I said, never too late to start. I have clients who started when they were like in their seventies working with me and it, they just flipped a switch one day, like something just, just flipped in their brain and they decided to be consistent in the gym when they'd never really done it before. And I know they feel 10 times better um, than, than they did before, just like daily life, functional movement, and just everything. And that was Alexis Dawn, trainer at Planet Fitness in Carbondale, Illinois. And incidentally, in ancient times, there were some big uh, glaciers coming down, and they stopped at Carbondale, and to the south, all the way down south, are hills and mountains, and that's because the glaciers, glaciers didn't clean them up. This is OK Boomer. I'm Robert Rickman, right, kid? Okay, Boomer. Here's a fun fact. Part of what I'm going to play next never got on TV. One big network for news and other things in the early 80s was NBC. Fred Silberman was president of the network, and so-called image promos were aired. You know, NBC, proud as a peacock. Uh, We're going to play you one of the image promos that were aired, followed by an image promo that promoted an image that Fred Silverman didn't want to promote. What? Who wrote... Who wrote that? I did. Say it again. NBC, we're proud. We've got lots of style. Proud. We've got a lot to smile about. Proud. In a special way, we're going to light your nights and fill your days. Make you dance. Make you sing. Fill you in on everything. We're proud to be, yeah. NBC, we're proud. We're going to jump and shout. Proud. We're going to reel and knock you Christy, do you approve of that? Okay, Boomer. How about Sharon? Okay, Boomer. <laughs> what about Patrick? Okay, Boomer. How about Kid? Okay, Boomer. <laughs> okay. Oh, wait a minute. We've got some people in here, and uh, oh, they look like they're almost. Well, never mind. Okay, Boomer.
Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective on life. So, how long do you think it takes a rocket and the launch tower to travel the four miles between the NASA assembly plant and the launch pad? Doesn't it take like two days to get there? No. What? Two hours? No. How long? Over 10 hours. 10 hours. Significantly less than one mile an hour. 10 hours. Over 10 hours to get that four miles. <laughs> it's got huge crawler. You've seen the pictures yeah, of it moving. Yeah. And that's what it's called, the crawler. Okay. Very apt. A food-oriented question for you, Marcia, and about one of your favorite subjects. Subjects. <laughs> wine. <laughs> Excuse me. Did I, did I slur that? <laughs> what do wine bottles and rifles have in common? Well, there you go. Wine bottles and rifles have something in common. They're both made from, uh, parts of them are both, uh, well, the cork and the shaft of the rifle are made from barrels. What do you put in a rifle? Lead. Bullets. You put bullets in a rifle. You You put a cork in the wine bottle. Guess what? The design for the first corkscrew was inspired by a rifle tool called a gunworm. Now, a gunworm was a screw-like device used to extract bullets when they got stuck in a rifle. Well, see, that's not that's not a, the way you phrase that question is. I said, fair. what do wine bottles and rifles have in common? It's more like that's what they have in common. They have a screw-like tool to remove obstructions in common. <laughs> There's it's so many very, things I could say to that. Very simple, Marsha. <laughs> All right. Okay. Ready? Mm-hmm. Have you ever looked at your zipper, Bob? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I've looked at several of them. Have you seen the letters on them? Z- y M K. Y K K. Y K K. You have looked at your zipper. I know the answer to this. All right. It's the Yokohama something something company, right? It's a company that makes zippers. That is correct. It's actually Yoshida Kagyo Kababushiki Kikasha. What? Yes. And that's why the guy changed it to uh, YKK. Say it again. Yoshida Kagyo Kabushki Kika Kaishia. Kabushki. K B U S H K I K A I S H A. Okay. Anyway, so in 1994, he changed it to just YKK. The privately held company is headquartered in Japan, but it has 106 companies around the world, including Macon, Georgia, which is the largest zipper company in the world. And they produce more than 5 million zippers a day just by themselves. Wow. How do you, 5 million, all into all different colors and sizes. I had no idea you needed that many zippers. Now, YKK, and I went into our closet to prove this was true, (laughs) (laughs) is considered an upper tiered zipper and is a staple on higher end products that need a quality zipper. Okay. So I did, I went in and our good jackets all have YKK on the zipper. Very good. But our cheaper sweatshirts, not so much. Oh, it's, that's it's too bad. It's some weird little thing on our, those zippers. <laughs> <laughs> some weird little thing. Yeah, it is. I love it. Okay, I, there's your zipper update for today. All right, well that was fast, <laughs> as a zip should be. Yeah. This is about a beverage. What contribution did the University of Florida make to sports training? Was that the uh, Gatorade thing? The Gatorade, that's right, yeah. Robert Cade, a University of Florida physiology professor, Uh he developed the sports drink to replace bodily fluids lost to physical exertion. He tested the drink on 10 of his school's players. That year, the team, the Gators, posted a winning record. And as a result, people started calling it Gatorade. And later they, they patented it and trademarked it. I'll be darned. All right. Here's the presidential question. I know you love your presidents. When President Thomas Jefferson sent Lewis and Clark out west to explore, he told them to watch out 
For what animal? Watch out for what animal? It was some kind of big exotic animal, wasn't it? Was it some kind of Bigfoot kind of thing? Was it that some kind of mythical beast? Is that what it was? Well, it was an actual beast, but it was uh, extinct about 10,000 years before. Dinosaurs. It was a mammoth. Okay. He was obsessed most of his life and was convinced that mammoths still roamed the American West. Not always the sharpest. Well, well, if you get out of your area of expertise, you make statements like that. That's true, because you're the smartest guy in the room, right? Mammoths were more correctly called American mastodons, Mm -hmm. and they went extinct at the end of the Ice Age around 10,000 years ago. Watch out for the mammoths. (laughs) Can you imagine Lewis and Clark going, (laughs) you know, Uh, okay, Tom. We'll be there, sir. Good. All right. If uh, folks want to listen to more of The Off-Ramp, they can go to our website, theofframp.show. That's theofframp.show. And listen to some of our podcasts. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marcia Smith. And that wraps up OK Boomer. I'm Robert Rickman. I'd like to thank Randy Mitchell, John Jackson, Bob and Marcia Smith, the NBC singers, including the ones who were fired, and Janice Paul. And OK Boomer will also be broadcast on WRFN Radio in Nashville, Tennessee at 10 o'clock every Monday morning. We're spreading out like an amoeba. Also, you can hear OK Boomer with Robert wherever you get your podcast. I'm Robert Rickman, and remember, we all have choices. <laughs>